0: How's everybody doing? Just ignore the noise behind you. Focus, right? Uh, Not to sound heavy-handed, but coming in today, just feeling like, wow, okay, Lord, what do you have for us today? Just think of, honestly, all your brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, like Josh just prayed for, that had to go through a lot more to gather today at church than just an annoying beeping sound in our wonderful Church lobby here, right? So, um, all right, great to be together. Great to see everybody today. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4, that's verses 1 through 37. And I'm going to read it for us here as we go. But before we dive into Daniel chapter 4, I want to ask you a question. I'm really curious about this. And we could all share this maybe after church or this next week in your community group. Have you ever been in a situation where it was pretty obvious? Someone either you were talking to one-on-one or maybe in a corporate gathering, it was pretty clear someone in the group thought they were kind of a big deal. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Yeah, that person thinks they're kind of a big deal. Or as the famous movie character Ron Burgundy once said, and quote, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm very important. I have many leather-bound books, and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. Has anyone ever been in a situation like that? I have. I'm sure we all have. And I hope you share stories about that. But then to press that point a little bit more, and you're all going to nod your head like, yeah, but we're going to explore this together. I wonder in your heart of hearts if someone could hear the dialogue that goes on inside of you. How often are you saying that, yeah, I'm kind of a big deal, right? Your inner Ron Burgundy is talking. That's kind of what we're going to be talking about and looking at here in Daniel chapter 4 today. And again, the book of Daniel, I just want to ground us in this real quick before we dive in. It's been confronting us today in our cultural moment of what it means for God's people to live faithfully on the margins, right? We've seen that over and over again in Daniel so far. God's kingdom is greater. God's kingdom is better. What does it mean for people, God's people, to live on the margins? And again, if we're all being really honest, it's okay to acknowledge it kind of feels like that lately, doesn't it? Kind of feels like the ground is shifting. What's happening? Are we as God's people today living more and more on the margins in our cultural moment? So that's the backdrop I want us to have in our minds before we dive into Daniel chapter 4. And before we do that, let me pray for us. Then have your Bible open in front of you, whether on a screen or a page, and we're going to dive into Daniel chapter 4 together. So let me pray. Please join me. Father God, we need you. We need to hear from you today through your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to treasure wonderful things from your word. Father, please, through the preaching of your word today, may you comfort the afflicted and may you mercifully afflict those who are comfortable in their pride. Father, we want to live faithfully in this time that you've placed us. Make us a repentant people. Convict us of pride and make us humble like Jesus. Lift our eyes from ourselves to you. And increase our joy and satisfaction in you. Make us a faithful people who trust and worship you as the true King, even as we live as exiles now. Strengthen us to know you more and to make you known. Open your word to us now and open us to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 37. We're going to be having three movements we're going to see in our text today. The first is the king's pride. That's in verses 1 through 27. The second movement is the king's humiliation. That's verses 28 through 33. And then lastly, the king's restoration. That's in verses 34 through 37. So first, follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 for us. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, It's leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, To the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So, all right, verses 1 through 18 This just doesn't bury the lead. Right away, this is a letter. Look at verse one. Put your finger on verse one. This is from the king of the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time to all the peoples and its personal praise about who God is and what God has done in his life. And this again will be the last time as we're going through the book of Daniel, this will be the last time that we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar. He vanishes off the scene after chapter four. So that's important just to be aware of as we're in chapter 4. And then in these verses here, the king tells this dream that we are maybe familiar with if you grew up in the church, but I want us to kind of press into the vantage point of the dream. The, the words I or me or my are used 18 times in these short 18 verses. So the focus or perspective of the king here is it's all about him. Again, he's kind of a big deal. So it's really personal. It's focused all on himself. And again, when you think about it, from what we've already learned about who our characters are, who King Nebuchadnezzar is in Daniel, it's kind of logical. He probably should feel like he's a big deal. He's the king, the ruler of the most powerful empire on earth. He's conquered other kingdoms. That's why Daniel's here, right? He's built amazing infrastructure and palaces, a whole empire. So it's kind of logical at some level, that his perspective or focus is, well, what does this dream mean about me? The focus is on himself. And then look at verse 10. See what the king says, what he saw in his dream. He saw a tree, a tree that was in the midst of the whole earth. So the tree is at the center of everything. The king then explains that this tree was great and strong, and it was visible to the whole earth. So then the tree is very beautiful. And it protects and it feeds all living things. It sounds probably a lot like how the king thinks about himself, right? But then you could say, all right, he knows he's really important. He's kind of a big deal. Why does he say in these verses that this dream made the most powerful man in the world? It says it made him afraid. Look at what happens. The supernatural breaks into his life. A watcher, a holy one, commands this tree that he's kind of self identifying with, commands this tree to be chopped down. And then the stump of the tree is left. And then a sentence from the heavens is pronounced against this stump. And then why does all this happen? Verse 17 it is the first of three times we're going to see God's crystal clear in chapter 4. Why does all this happen? Verse 17. To the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So all these things in play, there's an emotive reaction from the most powerful man in the world. This makes him afraid. It seems he has a sense of uneasiness or foreboding that this dream is not good news for him. And then verse 17 It's just speaking about reality that's in all the pages of Scripture, right? The big story arc of Scripture. That God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. He's sovereign over the kingdoms of men in Daniel and today. And his sovereignty is over and against the authority and power of rulers who lift themselves up into the place of God. So exalting yourself to the place of God that kind of functionally King Nebuchadnezzar's doing here, even in his heart, that's not a path to freedom. It's a path to destruction, and he kind of knows it in his heart of hearts. This dream's calling him out on this. Pastor and author Sam Alberry, this quote should be up on the screen here, he says this about God's sovereignty and what it means for us. The universe is his, God's. His authority is absolute and exhaustive. You will never breathe air that doesn't belong to him, and you will suffocate if you try. So again, the most powerful man in the world, it says here on the pages of scripture, and this is written by him, by the most powerful man. He owns it. I'm afraid. And he has every reason to be afraid. Really what's happening here is this small king is committing treason against the real king, and he knows it. And then he has to do something about this, right? He's really powerful, so he gathers all these soothsayers, magicians, everybody, and including Daniel, and he says, hey, tell me what this dream means. But when you really look at their responses, it's either A, they couldn't tell him what the dream meant, or it's kind of obvious he's a big deal and the dream's about a big tree. They didn't want to tell him because then their head would be cut off if he didn't like their answer, right? So then that brings us to Daniel the king seeks out the wise and faithful Daniel to interpret the dream and really to tell him the truth because no one else is willing to tell him the truth here. So let's look now at verses 19 through 27 where Daniel interprets the king's dream. Follow along with me as I read God's word aloud. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, "Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O King. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of times shall pass over you, tell you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed to you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. So in chapter 4, we might be tempted to think we've already seen the first three chapters, little glimpses of Daniel's life, right? We saw it earlier, a dream that he interpreted for the king. But that was younger Daniel. Time has passed now that we're here in Daniel 4. This is midlife Daniel, right? This is his hair is thinning Daniel. His body aches more Daniel, right? But he's here before the king again. And he has to give a response, an answer that's filled with truth and courage. And again, this is the story of Daniel. We're going to keep exploring this together. What it means to live faithfully on the margins. It wasn't like we have these little glimpses of a superhero. But what was happening in the day-to-day was forming him into a particular type of person that would be ready to live faithfully on the margins like this, even in front of a king. So this shaped Daniel into a faithful exile. The day-to-day worship of his king enabled him to speak truth to power. But his answer was filled with grace and truth. So he, he speaks grace and truth here to the king. And when you read it on first glance, it could feel kind of like, oh, that's just what people before the king are supposed to say, right? Kind of like a false honor. Oh, you're awesome. Don't hurt me. But hey, here's what the dream means. That isn't Daniel's heart. What he really wants He wants the king to repent. He's wanting the king to hear this warning from the Most High and to repent so that this doesn't come upon him. And this dynamic, it's repeated in the New Testament too, right? So probably a few of you, things are coming to mind, right? Book of 1 Peter, written to exiles, written to us now in God's sovereignty. It's like Peter had Daniel in his mind, when he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, when he tells Christians not to be fearful, but in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that the hope for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. That dynamic is what Daniel is portraying here before the most powerful man on earth. He tells the king, hey, you kind of already know it, but I'm just going to, call it out here, you're the tree, this curse is against you. The pronouncement from God is against the king. It's like God has a warrant out for King Nebuchadnezzar because of his pride. And Daniel just clearly speaks this before power. And then again, we have to ask why. God's word is crystal clear in chapter 4. Three different times God tells us why this pronouncement was made against the king. First time we saw it in verse 17. Now here, look down at verse 25. This all happens till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So this magnificent tree that is in the center of the earth that everyone finds protection in, that provides for all, This dream is capturing the idea of really what's happening in King Nebuchadnezzar's heart, that he really thinks he's kind of a big deal. And then Daniel implores the king in verse 27. Look at what Daniel says. He says this to the most powerful man in the world. Verse 27, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. So iniquities here, it means the sinfulness of your sin. So the sinfulness of his sin is how he's treating people, how he's oppressing people in his pride. Because he thinks he's a really big deal. He's the tree in the middle of the earth. doesn't matter how he treats people. Daniel calls him out on that and calls him to repentance. So this, this should take us somewhere as we're just following the story, right? What will the king do with this gracious warning from Daniel? because sometimes if we're being honest we all know times of humbling can bring about repentance and sometimes times of humbling can actually bring about a hardening of your heart so what's going to happen here to king nebuchadnezzar and that brings us to the second movement in our text And i'm going to read it for us verses 28 through 33 let's see what happens to the king all this all this came upon king nebuchadnezzar And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. But vivid imagery here, right? So look at verse 28. Remember when we started chapter four? It was written first person from King Nebuchadnezzar. Amazing. A chapter in the Bible written from the most powerful man in the world. But it shifts here. And we can see why, right? Because he goes crazy. He couldn't write these passages of Daniel because he was like an ox. He was an animal here. And we just have to know this pronouncement in the dream comes true against the king, and he's humbled in spectacular fashion. And that's because God always keeps his word. God's promises and his gracious warnings always come true, 100% of the time, no exceptions, always. And then a core theme that's just driven home clearly throughout scripture is that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Jesus says in Luke 18, 14, this is Jesus speaking for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what we're seeing here in vivid fashion to the most powerful man on earth. And look again at verse 29, just kind of think of the timeline of this story. I don't want us to lose it in kind of just all the little details. One year has passed since Daniel's interpretation before the king. So King Nebuchadnezzar had one whole year, 12 months to repent. How gracious and kind of God, right? Because God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. But does the king repent? What happens to King Nebuchadnezzar? Again, look at verses 29 and 30. Maybe you're familiar with this story, but I don't want us to lose the beauty and wonder of God's word. Just look at verses 29 and 30. It says the king is walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, probably looking around at all his splendor. And then he says, whether to someone else and or in his heart of heart, he says it to himself, is this not the great Babylon? which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And then right in verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, but really those words have been in his heart for a while, right? Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But those words leave his mouth, and then his kingdom departs from him. God's discipline falls on the king. He's driven to have his dwelling His dwelling, he lives in this royal palace or palaces, and now his dwelling is in the field with beasts. What a spectacular fall for a king. And to really feel the weight of what's happening here, I want you to see how glorious God is and how poetic his justice is. So, the setting, when he's walking in the royal palace here, this is likely the palace that King Nebuchadnezzar built for one of his wives. It's the hanging gardens of Babylon. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. So he's walking in one of the seven wonders of the world and says, look how great I am, right? That's the response that's happening in his heart. And really, though, when he's saying how glorious he is, how majestic he is, I mean, what's that sound like, right? Doesn't that kind of sound like God talk? Or more realistically, that sounds like a lot like serpent talk, doesn't it? I mean, think about back in Genesis chapter 3. The pride that's oozing out of the king's heart here is the same pride that we saw injected into Adam's race back in Genesis chapter 3. It's the same lie from the Garden of Eden. He wants to be God is really what's happening here. He really doesn't think he can trust God to satisfy his needs, so he has to build all this splendor and focus on himself. He is functionally the center of his own universe and the root sin of pride makes us want to be on the throne more than god it even makes this king the most powerful man in the world want to be on the throne more than god that's the dynamic that's going on here in daniel chapter 4. so just have that setting think about that setting and think about the timing of when god's pronouncement falls it's at that moment when he's walking in one of the seven wonders of the world that God makes him into like a beast of the field. He was the strong tree that would fall. And where does a strong tree fall? In the garden of Babylon. is that amazing? In the seven wonders of the world, this tree, that's where God's judgment falls. So the scene of humbling the king's humiliation is in a very strategic place to make God's point. And again, when God says he opposes the proud, he really means it. Like, we shouldn't lose that point, even if you're familiar with Daniel chapter 4. God really means he is opposed to the proud. He is against the proud. He's making a point of it here for us in Daniel chapter 4. And again, why? Is God just vindictive and out to get people? Look at verse 32 for the third time already in our text. Crystal clear why this happens. This all happens to the king until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So again, think about what's happening here. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's basically worshiping the creation more than the creator. He's worshiping himself more than God, so the creator gives him over to his creatureliness. Right? He's acting like a creature. Let me just make the point and take it all the way to the extreme. Now you can be an animal because that's really what's happening in his heart. He's worshiping self, himself by looking over these royal gardens. So God make, makes him like one of the beasts of the fields that he's looking over. God is giving him over to what he's praising. And it's actually a curse because we become like what we worship. God's word says, He's worshiping the creation more than the creator. So God's like, you want that? Here you go. Let's see how this plays out for you. And then that's what's happening here to the king, the most powerful man in the world. Later in the New Testament, Jude verse 10 says that those who blaspheme, that's what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's blaspheming. Those who blaspheme, what they don't understand are, according to Jude 10, like unreasoning animals. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar is right here. He's an unreasoning animal. This is on full display. The most powerful man in the world has been turned into an unreasoning animal because of his pride. Because of his pride. At the end of verse 33, this king has been driven from men. He looks like an animal. He's eating with the animals. We don't know for how long this pronouncement, this curse is in effect. But think about that. King Nebuchadnezzar, is living like an animal. So, this, we're meant to feel like attention here as we're brought along into the story, right? What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen to this king? Is he going to continue in his pride or will he lift his eyes to the Most High in humility? Would he come to know, like we've seen throughout our text already, would he come to know that God rules the kingdom of men and that God gives it to whom he will? So, basically, the king has drank poison, the poison of pride. Is there an antidote for his pride? So let's look at the third movement in our text, the last few verses here, verses 34 through 37. I'm going to read it for us. Follow along with me. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So again, just so we're connecting all the dots and what's going on here in chapter 4, verse 34, it's back to the first person perspective. He's in his right mind again. He can finish chapter 4, verses 34 through 37, and he tells what happened to him. He took his eyes off himself, and he lifted his eyes to heaven, and then his reason returned to him. His pride was insanity, and it just manifested itself. It was obvious he was like an animal. But when he's humble, he sees things clearly again. Everything falls in its proper place. He then blesses and praises God, and what does he bless and praise God for? That God is sovereign and that God's the glorious king. And so this king now knows who the true king is and then he finds life, right? King Nebuchadnezzar praises God that all his works are right and his ways are just. So think about what that means for Nebuchadnezzar to say that. He was just an animal for however long we don't know. And he's saying God's pronouncement against his pride, making him like an animal, was right and his ways are just, meaning that God humbling him was gracious and good. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying here. Nebuchadnezzar bows the knee, steps off the throne of his life, and trusts God to be his good and glorious king, his gracious king. And the most powerful man in the world here, he's praising God from his heart. He's praising God for his sovereignty, for his gracious sovereignty that he disciplined him in his pride, that God was gracious enough to do that to him, and he praises God for it. And then again, when you, when you look at all of chapter four, just to give you the upshot, the end here, it's a personal praise. It's not just like saying, yeah, that's all well and good, God's good. He's like, it's my God. I give him praise. Something happened. Something clicked in his heart. And I, th- I think there's uh, an important lesson for us when you maybe look at this text from maybe a little different angle when we see our characters here, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And again, Daniel, we're learning what does it mean to live faithfully on the margins, right? There's a lesson for us here. Daniel has faithfully testified time and time again of who his God is before power, before King Nebuchadnezzar, many, many times. And it took years before the king professed Daniel's God to be his God, right? So that, that is a, a point of instruction for us when, as we're living as exiles and on the margins, that God works on his timing, not ours. And that's true in our own life and becoming more like Christ as Christians, and that's true for being gracious witnesses and exiles. You probably have been sharing Jesus with someone in your life for a long time, and you continually to pray for this person, and you're on your knees, tears in your eyes. Lord, please save them. It's on God's timing to do that. And God did that here in Daniel chapter 4 to the most powerful man in the world. Okay, this really happened. This isn't a fairy tale. This is speaking to who God is and what he does. So God's grace is resilient and irresistible. Same in Daniel 4, same today. His grace and in so- sovereignty are his character. That's who our God is. None, it says here, None can stay his hand. So as exiles, we have to live into that reality. That helps us live faithfully on the margins. And then as we're going to kind of move to the end of this chapter, okay, how does this land on us? And there's a lot that could be said, but we want the main idea of the text to be the main idea of the sermon, right? But look at what uh, King Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 35. When he's talking about the pride that he came out of, And then he speaks to God. King Nebuchadnezzar says, none can pridefully say to God, what have you done? But in reflecting on God's word, God's word's like a mirror. It cuts to the joints and marrow. It divides the motives in our heart. Shows us what's really inside of us. If you're anything like me, don't we all do that a lot? Don't we all say or even entertain those thoughts? God, what are you doing? And don't you at times feel like he doesn't know what he's doing, right? Maybe he's taken a nap or he's forgotten what he's doing. Maybe that's true in your own life or maybe in the world around you. You're saying, just like in verse 35, God, what have you done? And really when we kind of press into that, we're really saying that we want to be at the center. That we're kind of a big deal because we're saying, God, what have you done? And we all have times like that, right? And really what that's saying is we don't trust God's character. We don't trust that he's using his sovereignty in the best kind of way, right? So we're just like Nebuchadnezzar here if we're looking at this. The poison of pride that took down King Nebuchadnezzar, it flows in the motives of our heart too. What came to mind for me is, I'm sorry to bring this up, I know we're all probably ready for things to be different and better, but in our time of covid how do you know if you definitively have COVID as best we have? You take a test, right? And then you're told, hey, you have COVID or not. You take a COVID test. Well, if there was a pride test, this was just on my mind, and we all took it right now, we would all test positive. Every single person in this room and in the sound of my voice watching online, we'd all test positive for pride, okay? Every single one of us were made of the same stuff of King Nebuchadnezzar when we're reading Daniel, Josh shared this a few weeks ago, we all want to see ourselves in Daniel. We all want to see ourselves in the hero, which is good. There's a lot there. But we're made of the same stuff as King Nebuchadnezzar. We ask and want to be at the center of the universe more than God. And when you think about it, um, maybe in terms of, okay, yeah, you could say, yeah, I test positive for pride. Like, yeah, I know we're all prideful. But I want us to kind of sit in that for a minute or we're not really taking away what God's word has for us here. Because when you think about it, yeah, I test positive for pride. Well, maybe our pride just manifests itself differently than King Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe it's not as blatant here as kind of what's getting you off the hook. But really, probably what's happening is we just all hide it better. And maybe your pride manifests itself in anger or arrogance, maybe your pride manifests itself as self pity right? That's still pride. You're still at the center of things. Or maybe your flavor of pride is spiritual pride, of wanting to earn favor with God and other people. We're all prideful. It just manifests itself differently. But just like we've seen super clear here in Daniel chapter 4, pride always destroys. It's never satisfied. It was consuming King Nebuchadnezzar, right? God had to do something about it. Pride makes you the center of your universe, but that's a lie. We're creatures, not the creator. That's not what we're designed for. And because of that, pride crushes us. And then think about this, maybe in your life or in the life of other people, it crushes you, but doesn't it also crush everybody around you, right? It's, I'm I'm important, I'm kind of a big deal, meaning no one else is a big deal. And then other people are hurt because of your pride. Pride always consumes and it robs us of joy. It's never satisfied. Pride will ruin you, right? There's a reason this is about the most powerful king on earth at the time. Pride ruined the king, okay? But it can also ruin a middle-class citizen here in Gresham, Oregon in 2021. The problem of pride is a poison that ruins lives. It destroys relationships it infects organizations, it ruins marriages, it infects communities, and it even can ruin churches, okay? The same pride that's happening here, we need to be graciously warned about from God's word. And our text, again, it clearly shows us how does God feel? Like, God has emotions. How does he feel about pride? He's not ambivalent, about it. He doesn't just like, oh yeah, that Mike, I guess he's just prideful. I put up with it. God is opposed to pride. He's opposed to it. The God of the universe is opposed to pride. In our text here, Nebuchadnezzar was a tree that was cut down, and God does this because he's holy and good. He's rightly against pride. If we're all nodding our heads, oh yeah, pride's bad, and if God's good, then shouldn't God be against pride, right? That's what's happening. So I, I just want us to hear this. Uh, I wouldn't be being a faithful elder, uh, preaching God's word to you if I didn't say this. And I really want you to hear me. God is calling us to turn from our pride, right? To humble ourselves before God. Like he really, truly is. To do otherwise is insanity. You're acting as if you're insane if you don't humble yourself before God, right? Because we all test positive for pride. But then how, right? How do we do this? How do we get the power to humble ourselves and to worship God as he really is, to worship God as God? And how do we have hope as exiles to live faithfully on the margins when prideful kings rule, right? That's the story of human history, prideful kings rule. How is Daniel 4 good news for prideful people like us? And what I want you to see here is not just, yeah, tack on at the end. I want you to see like what's in Daniel 4 and what's happening. It's just amazing. So remember that um, King Nebuchadnezzar, why did God choose in his dream to make him a tree? He could have made him lots of different stuff to prove his point, right? Why a tree? That's kind of interesting. We should maybe reflect on that. And it was a tree that was described a particular kind of way. It was a tree that was in the center of earth that grew big and strong and beautiful, and it protected the living things, and it provided nutrients and sustained everything. Well, why is that? And then that tree, really that king, was cut down because of his pride. So think about with me for a minute, and this isn't like a short side tour. This is like getting to the heart of what's happening to Daniel 4. So think about it. A tree. Genesis 3. A tree, right? Adam and Eve eat of one tree and not the other because they wanted to be gods. They didn't believe God that would give them what would really satisfy them. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they were banished from the garden. That's what's happening here in our chapter, in Daniel chapter 4. The serpent's poison of pride is what takes down the tree, what takes down King Nebuchadnezzar. And that same poison of pride is what casts Adam and Eve out of the garden, right? because we all want to be the king at the center of our lives. So we have to be rescued from our pride. So think about this, this is pointing us somewhere, right? Think of these things in play, kings and trees. Daniel 4 is pointing us to the only antidote to our pride, the only solution to our pride problem. Instead of a prideful king, we need a humble king to save us. Just think about what, like, the layers of color and the beauty of God's word, what's happening here in Daniel chapter 4. Jesus is the true and better King who humbled himself to be cut down on a tree in order to save us from our prideful hearts. Jesus was cut down in our place. Jesus became a man to save men from our pride of wanting to be God. I just see everything that's happening here in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, Mark read in our call to worship from Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. I'm just going to read it here for us and think about how it describes how good of a king Jesus is. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So think about that. Who's the king in the tree happening in Philippians 2? In humility, Jesus was cut down on a tree, again, to save prideful sinners like you and me. That's how good of a king Jesus is. His intent, his character, his heart is that of a good king who would go this far. Compare and contrast that to the prideful king in the tree that was chopped down in Daniel chapter 4. And then think about how good of a king Jesus is. Uh, I'm probably nerding out on this. Just one last thing. A king in a tree. Think about Jesus dies on a tree to rescue us from our sin of pride. It doesn't just stay there. There's a tree on the horizon in the future, too, that he's saving us to. So if if you have time, I'll, I'll read it uh, to you. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, is speaking about eternity and the new heavens and the new earth that's a lot better than the, ba- the gardens of Babylon. Listen to this. Listen to what it says about a tree. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nations." So the cross of King Jesus, it saves us from our pride and then it welcomes us back into the garden forever and ever. Like, can you see what kind of King Jesus is, right? And why it's worth humbling ourselves, confessing and repenting of our pride and surrendering our lives to King Jesus. We can trust him. So we can really see Daniel 4 is really about a king and a tree. Uh, There's a quote here should be on the screen. I'm going to read it for you, and then uh, two last things, and, and we're done. Listen to this quote. Between the trees of the first and of the second paradise, there stands silent and sublime that other tree, the tree of shame, the accursed tree of the cross upon which Christ once hung. From this cross, God stretches out his hand to the lost wanderer in the wilderness, longing to bring him back forever from his own ways to the heavenly homeland. That's who our God is. That's what's happening here in Daniel chapter 4. So two things as we close. Maybe you're here today or you're streaming online and you're not a Christian. And I'd be really curious. I'd love to talk with you maybe after the service or later this week. I'd love to know how this like hits you, right? And and I wonder if you're kind of feeling or wondering about, man, I wish that was true. I wish there was a God. And I wish he was so good like this. And I just want to ask you, if you don't know Jesus, to entertain the possibility that your pride has blinded to you to what reality really is. And that there is a God who's this good. And he's proven it for all time at the cross and through the empty tomb. That's what Daniel 4 is pointing us to. And then secondly, for those who are Christians and for us as Gresham Bible Church, as a local church family who are living as exiles now, I really want to encourage you in this moment as we take communion here and even throughout this week and as you gather in community groups, I want us to apply this to our hearts. And I don't mean that and just like, a, I don't know, cheesy, um, you know, just, oh, that sounds good. No, no, really like press it into your heart, into what you love, into what you think about yourself and what you think about the world around you, living as an exile now, right, living on the margins of a society now. The tree in the Daniel 4 points us to the cross of Jesus and our only hope for prideful prideful exiles like us. So we really do need to confess and repent of our pride. It's poison to our souls. Pride will ruin you and ruin those around you. So we need to humbly submit ourselves to our good and gracious and sovereign God. So I encourage you this week to reflect on Daniel 4 and talk to others in Gresham Bible Church about this, right? That will only bless each other to talk about how good and great our God is and to be honest, and we're all prideful. So Gresham Bible Church, because King Jesus is at the center, we can live faithfully on the margins. And I want to leave you with one quote that is from uh, a dear sister in Christ, um, Nancy Alcorn. And hear this quote and and receive it as exiles that you can trust God no matter what you're going through. I can take the check of Christ's trustworthiness to the bank. I can trust Christ's promises. I can trust his plan. I can trust his timing, I can trust his methods, I can trust his love for me. So let me close this in prayer. Lord, we praise you that you are good and gracious and sovereign, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We confess and repent of our pride of wanting to be at the center of our lives. Pride makes us weary. Give rest to our weary souls. Lord, make us a joyful and humble people in view of your glory, your sovereignty, and your grace. Father, may you increase and we decrease. We praise you for who you are. How great are your signs. How mighty are your wonders. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures from generation to generation. In Jesus' name, amen.